title of the sermon this morning is When the Messenger Becomes the Message. Jeremiah 16. We're going to take three gems or jewels from this mine. First, I want us to look at how God uses Jeremiah in this chapter. It's an interesting way that he uses Jeremiah. Secondly, why he called him to that ministry. Why did, why did God do that? And thirdly, what the actual message was. First, how did God use Jeremiah in this passage? You read it with me? Not to marry, mourn, or mingle. The high schoolers went on a uh, recent uh, mission trip just recently. And one of the things that was brought out in that mission trip was that we are God's spokesmen. And that we hold out the truth to a lost and dying world. All of us here, Christians, we hold out the truth to a lost and dying world. But do we have to do that all the time? I mean, don't we get time to rest from that? Are we allowed some time to get away from that ministry? Well, on this mission trip, we were in a a single-wide trailer park. They were very old, maybe 30 years old. I think you could probably buy one of the the trailers for about $1,500. Probably more, but not much. And these kids, who are mostly Hispanic, would come out. We would honk the horn and they would just run from, I don't know where, underneath the trailer maybe. They'd just run to us, you know. And and they'd just be so excited to see us. And for about three hours in the morning, we, we led a sports camp. And in, for about four hours in the afternoon, we had a VBS, or a Backyard Bible Club. And, and a couple of things we noticed. First of all, the kids didn't know a whole lot about Christ. And so we felt very useful. We were holding out the light of the gospel. The second thing we noticed was that the kids were on us, around us, under us, on top of us, all the time. There were about 30 of them, and about a dozen of us. And so each of us had about two or three, you know. And they would hit us, and they'd jump on our shoulders, and they'd sit on our laps. That's what we did for about seven or eight hours all day long. Well, for lunch, we packed our own lunch in a cooler, and we took it to a Baptist church about ten miles down the road. And and that's where we had our lunch, in a Baptist church. It was a fellowship hall, kind of like this place right here. Air-conditioned, quiet. In the trailer park, it was hot, crowded. In the Baptist church, it was quiet and air-conditioned. But most of all, what we cherished about our lunch, our hour-and-a-half lunch, was that it was time to get away. There were no kids jumping on top of us. We got tired after a while, and that lunch was a welcome rest. Well, that's necessary in ministry, isn't it? I mean, you can't do it all the time. You need time to relax. You need time to just be ourselves without our guard up. Without our guard up because we're witnesses for Christ. We can just let our hair down. Well, ministry like that never really costs too much. Ministry like that isn't personal. There's a barrier that we set up that protects our personal life from those that we minister to. On the trip, you know, as much as we loved that Baptist church where we ate our lunch every day for an hour and a half, we began to feel as a group, we began to feel there was kind of two lives. One life, 
We're serving Christ. Kids jumping all over us. Having a great time. Working hard. The other life, we're at the church. And we're relaxing. And we're being just ourselves. Now that's okay to rest. But the question here in in Jeremiah 16 is, what about that? What does it mean to rest? What does it mean to get away in ministry? I think... I think we see Jeremiah here in a disturbing way. Jeremiah 16. God invades that personal space, his personal life. God invades it in a way that's very painful for Jeremiah. God broke down the barriers that protected his personal life, so Jeremiah could never get away from his ministry, from his calling. Was Jeremiah ready for that kind of ministry? Well, Jeremiah wasn't alone. It was, it, was, it was interesting. Jeremiah wasn't alone in God invading his personal space. It was like God lined up all the prophets. And he said, Isaiah, you get to walk around buck naked for three years. That's what he said. That, yeah, that's invasive of my personal private space. He's, no, Hosea, I want you to marry a prostitute. You ever heard this story? She'll be unfaithful to you. And then you'll go back and get her. And you'll have three children by her. Three children. The first child, you'll name God Scatters. The second child, you'll name Not Loved. The third child, the third child is a girl. And this daughter, Not My People. Can you imagine him, I, Hosea, introducing his children. Hi, this is my daughter. Her name is not loved. That's invasive of your personal space. Ezekiel, you get to marry a great woman. But in the middle of her life, I'll cause her to die. Plus, I'm not going to let you mourn for her. The very next day, you'll go on like nothing has happened. Jeremiah? At this point, Jeremiah's you can see him, right? He's backing up. This isn't biblical. This is just a hypothetical situation. But if it were to happen, Jeremiah, you know, maybe he would just run. You know, I thought being a prophet, a messenger of God, was just to speak the word, hold out the light of truth to a lost and dying world. Okay, I understand. Speak. I'll stand at the gate all day long and say whatever you want me to say. But that invasiveness, that invade you. My personal space. That hurts. And I think it's not just true of the prophets. God decides to use our lives in an invasive way. Well, let's look at how God uses Jeremiah. How he is the messenger. He, God says, here's what I want you to do. No, no, actually, here's three things I don't want you to do. Let's look at them. I don't want you to marry... I don't want you to mourn, and I don't want you to mingle. Now, if you think about those three, something comes to your mind. You learn something about what God is saying to to Judah. Think about what he's called here, not to marry. Some people might come to Jeremiah and say, isn't it about time for you to marry? I'm not going to get married, says Jeremiah. What What about a family? Don't you want kids? I'm never going to have any child. I'm never going to date, never going to kiss a girl that I like. 
ever going to hold her hand or pop the question, ask her father, can I marry her? Never going to have a wedding, never receive gifts. I'm not going to do any of that. I'm not going to have a child to play with or teach or train or discipline or love or, or jump around with. I'm going to be utterly lonely. That's strange. Now that's not just strange because it's different. That seems against God's original plan. Remember, Genesis, God is the one that says it's not good for Adam to be alone. You remember that? So he created Eve, called her his helper. And through this marriage, you remember what happened? God said, be, multi- be multiply, be fruitful, increase, and fill the earth. That's God's design. And he takes that design away from Jeremiah. Think about it. If you don't get married or have kids, that's what Jeremiah was called to. Jeremiah's life would not be perpetuated through his children into the future. Life is sort of stopped at Jeremiah. Secondly, think about the mourning. You may not mourn, says God. You can't go to a funeral. Some might say to Jeremiah, I can't believe you were not at your mother's funeral. You didn't even send a card, Jeremiah. Where were you? Jeremiah says, I'm not going to funerals. What? Don't you want to be sad and express your sadness and get over it and, and, and be with other people who are mourning and comfort us maybe? I'm never going to mourn anyone's death ever again. Now that is weird. It's not just weird because it's different. It's weird. Jeremiah stuck out like a sore thumb, not just because he was doing something different, but because it's sort of against God's design. Death is a consequence of sin. Adam's sin. Death came into the world. And when somebody dies, we remember their life in the past. And we mourn. Jesus Christ, when he was on earth, You remember what happened. Lazarus died. The funeral was there. And even though Christ knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, he experienced the mourning of that funeral. And he he wept. The scriptures tell us that he was overcome with sorrow and grief, and he wept. So for God to say to Jeremiah not to mourn, Seems kind of weird. Finally, and the third one wraps them all up together. Not to mingle. You shall not go to the house of feasting. For I'm going to take away mirth and gladness. Don't go to any parties. That's what he said. Some might say, where were you last night? Your brother's birthday party. It was great. I'm not going to parties. What are you up? Party pooper? What, you don't like parties? You're afraid to go? What, what's the deal, Jeremiah? I'm not ever going to celebrate again. You know, when we go to birthday parties or baby showers or weddings, some of the parties that are mentioned here in Jeremiah 16, what are they celebrating? They're celebrating life. Not life in the future, like through marriage. Not life in the past, like in a, in a funeral. We're thinking about life in the present. So, do you see what God is taking away from Jeremiah? Do you see how he invades his personal life, every part of his life? And he takes away life in the future, life in the past, life in the present. Why? 
That's the second point. Why did he do that? But before we talk about why, and before we talk about the message, let's just pause for a moment and realize that God did that to Jeremiah. And the question before us today, will God do that to us? If we are God's messengers, will he demonstrate in our lives his judgment and his grace and mercy and kindness and love and power? Will he do that? Is he able to do that? Are we going to let him do that? Romans 12 says, Offer the the members of your body to God as instruments of righteousness. That's a costly ministry. Life taken away. You know, it brings to mind life in the future, present, and past taken away. It brings to mind Charles Dickens' uh, Christmas Carol, where there was a ghost and the ghost showed uh, Scrooge his sin in the past and present and future. So Jeremiah is kind of like this walking dead man. He's not allowed to celebrate or mourn or marry and, and have children or anything like that. He's just this walking sort of a dead man, isolated from the rest of society. And people are very drawn to this, and they're very concerned about this. It brings to mind Deuteronomy 13, I mean 30. Let me read that passage for you. It says, God says to Israel, See, I've set before you today on this side life and prosperity, and on this side death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase the very things that Jeremiah could not do. (laughs) Couldn't celebrate life. Couldn't mourn life. Couldn't increase. Do you see this this is being taken away from Jeremiah? But if your heart turns away and you're not obedient, if you're drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day... You'll certainly be be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you're crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. A costly ministry. Jeremiah was the messenger who became the message. His personal space and life was a living sermon. Okay, so that was a costly ministry. Are you ready for it? It's going to come. Here's the second part. Why did he do it? When God brings suffering into your life, when God takes things away from you and demonstrates his power, might, judgment, grace, and mercy in your life, you oftentimes ask that question. Why why are you doing it this way? Why don't you just let me say the words and speak? Well, when Jeremiah stuck out like a sore thumb, when he was single, didn't mourn, didn't go to any funerals, didn't go to any parties, people would come to them. And he must have been bombarded with questions. And that's where you see God's purpose for Jeremiah. So that people would take notice. I was reading in 2 Kings uh, verse, uh, chapter 21, verse 9, it says, But the people did not listen. Manasseh led them astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. I was amazed. Do you know how many times that phrase, the people did not listen, occurs in the Old Testament? Type it into gateway.com in their concordance, or look it up. It's amazing. 
hundreds and hundreds of passages. If you just look at Jeremiah 1 through 16, you'll see it a dozen times at least. The kind of people God was communicating with did not listen to words. 1 Kings 19, you remember this passage, it's very, very famous. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. You see it? We're not just not listening, we're killing the voice box. That's the kind of people that Jeremiah was speaking to. That's why God used Jeremiah's life this way, so that people would stop and take notice. That's weird. And they'd walk up to Jeremiah and say, why are you doing that, Jeremiah? Then, then they're listening. The same way with us. God will use our lives in such a way that makes us weird. You know the phrase in the New Testament that Christ told us? John 17, Father, I don't pray that you take them out of the world. I pray that you protect them while they're in the world. And here's the key. I'm going to make them different. And they're going to stand out and people are going to ask questions. But it's a costly ministry. Look with me at verse 11 and verse 12, Jeremiah 16. God says, okay, then say to them, It's because your fathers forsook me, declares the Lord, and followed other gods and served and worshipped them. Verse 12, but you have behaved more wickedly than your fathers. See how each of you is following the stubbornness of his evil heart instead of obeying me. Think of all the thousands of messages that have come before this time. The flood. Babel, the Tower of Babel, where God confuses languages. How about the nation of Israel walking in the desert for 40 years? Or perhaps the whole book of Judges. Sin, judgment, salvation. Sin, judgment, salvation. You just read the book of Judges. You get into this little, you know, this little dance. The whole book of Judges seems like that's what they're doing. For that matter, you could read 1 Kings and 2 Kings and the same sort of thing will happen. Or in recent times for Judah in Jeremiah 16, Israel judged by Assyria. Do you see all of, the, all of the chances that God gave Judah? All of the messages that he's sending him. And they're not listening. They're not hearing. They're not taking notice. And so God uses Jeremiah. His personal life. Because people will notice that. And so today, in a world full of people who are lost, and His amazing grace, that song says they're blind God uses our lives in a similar way so that people will notice. Well, now they're noticing. What are they noticing? What's the answer? What's the message, Jeremiah? You're doing something weird. Okay, you got a word from the Lord. What is it? We want to hear it. Well, judgment, guys. <laughs> You've heard me say it before. I'll say it again, though. Here, here you go. There's a judgment so horrible, you're never going to want to marry or have any kids, because they're all going to die. 
And you're never going to get buried. You're going to be dung on the earth. It's terrible. This is the, this is the message. Now let's just pause here for a second. We've been studying Jeremiah for a while now. Are you not just a little tired of hearing judgment? A little bit? Sin? I mean, how many of you have read Isaiah? You get it, you know, oh gosh, there's judgment all over. There. Okay, I'm going to go to Ezekiel. That's better. Judgment all over. I mean, it's everywhere. It's everywhere in Jeremiah. Sin. Judgment. Well, what is God up to? You have to ask that question. What is this judgment? Is it revenge? You know, every youth retreat I've been on, and most mission trips, uh, have what we call cabin wars. The girls' cabin is over here, and the guys' cabin is over here, and we have cabin wars. Now, the youth leaders have to be a little careful because the kids kind of go over the line, and the youth leaders are the responsible ones who keep them from going over the lines because, you know, we, we're logical and... And they're not. So, anyways, the kids, this is how it usually starts, cabin wars. We love to laugh at each other's misery. The girls start, they do something called the toilet paper web. It, you know, it's, it's pretty funny. I mean, it's a three on the scale. It's all right. Well, what they do is they put toilet paper from floor to ceiling, wall to wall, so that when you wake up in the morning, or funnier yet, when you get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, you, you know, you're in a web and everybody wakes up. Oh, the girls got us. Okay, this is great. Now, the guys, the guys strike back in a serious form. They have what was called an axe bomb, and I'm sure many of you have heard of this axe bomb before. Axe is a fragrance that comes in an aerosol can, and you spray the top, the little nozzle goes down, it sprays out. Well, you, you wrap duct tape on the top so the nozzle is, is, is indefinitely depressed. And it sprays out, and you throw it in the girls' lo- the cabin, and, and the, the good trick, the really good, the seal the deal is to hold the door shut. Because they're trying to get the duct tape off and they can't, ah, we've got to throw it out. And they try to open the door. And, and the point is to get all the axe expelled in, in about 20 minutes. And it stinks. Well, the girls strike back with something called walking on water. Something kind of funny. Where they take 500 styrofoam cups, fill them halfway up with water, and line them up on the floor, all over the cabin floor. And when you get up in the morning, or funnier yet, when you go to the bathroom at night, you walk on water. Step on the cups, they, they spill, it's a big mess, you have to clean it up. You know, it's okay. But the guys, let me tell you about the guys. The guys win every time. Now, I know I'm inciting a lot of violence in the next youth retreat, girls, you know, I know. But the guys won the last time with the, the <clears throat> fish oven. This one you have to plan just right. The guys, what they do is, is they walk into the cabin at just the right time. When everyone's on the van, ready to go whitewater rafting for their four-hour excursion in the afternoon, the guy, one guy takes a dead fish, puts it under the bunk, turns the heater up, and closes the door and windows. And everybody enjoys a four-hour whitewater trip. Only when the girls get back, they experience the fish oven. And they wish, oh, they wish it was an axe bomb because the fish oven's ten times worse. You know, youth leaders are always a little tense on this. The rule on a youth retreat is, yeah, we'll do things like that. It's funny, okay. But, you know, a youth leader has to be involved. Because, you know, we want to keep it. Because, you know, if, if you go over the line and they suffer too much, it's not funny. If they suffer too much... It's not funny. If you suffer for the Lord, if you're a Christian, and you're like Jeremiah, God deprives you of something you want and long for. Paul called it his thorn in his side. And you beg God to take it away. And he doesn't. Wait, is this a, is this a cabin war, God? Are you getting me back for something I did to you? Are you up there laughing? And if you've never asked that question to God, I I dare say you probably haven't suffered enough. God is sovereign. 
He's in control of every molecule. But that's not what God is doing here in Jeremiah 16. Listen to the words of Jesus in Luke 13, and you'll start to see his heart. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent, who was sent to you, how often, and here it is, listen, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. I've longed for that. Judgment, fire, it's coming. That's the message Jeremiah gives. But I want you to notice, it's not a consuming fire. The fires of judgment that are coming soon to Judah, they're not the fires of hell. They're not eternal punishment. How do we know that? A consuming fire has no hope. The fires, the judgment that we see in Jeremiah 16, there is hope. Surprise to everybody. In the middle of a storm comes a lightning bolt, bright of grace and mercy. We've been walking down the corridors of judgment, it seems like, for years here at Christ Community Church. And all of a sudden, in Jeremiah 16, one of the greatest messianic passages, one of the greatest passages of of grace and mercy and kindness, hits us. And it hits us by surprise. That's how we know this is not a consuming fire. It's a refining fire. The word refining fire comes in Malachi 3. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire. He will sit as a refiner and purify and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. This fire hurts. It's painful. But it refines you. This is a fire that takes the impure gold and melts it down, and it burns away all the dross until what is left is pure gold. That's the message. God is going to send a refining fire to purify his people. What does it mean to be refined? What is the dross that God is trying to burn away? It is sin. It's the guilt and the shame of sin. But but there's something else, too. This is what suffering will do. It will lift your eyes off of yourself and look to God. You ever had a crush on someone? I've had a crush on someone. I was in sixth grade. I had a crush on a girl named Jenny. The problem was this girl had been my best friend since I was two years old. We'd done everything together, played with each other for years. So she was just, you know, my friend from... From the diaper age. We'd grown up together. All of a sudden, in sixth grade, going into seventh, I started noticing things about her that made my stomach tingle. The way she looked at me wasn't quite the same. She didn't, I get, she changed, I guess, I guess she changed, but something was happening inside me. I didn't know her hair, woo, never noticed your hair before. I've never noticed your hair before. I used to pull it, you know. But now, I had a crush on this girl. Well, one time, I, I, I never wanted to tell her, by the way. I, I didn't want to tell her because, you know, it kind of make it real awkward for us. And I just I became somewhat of a secret admirer. You know, we, we played still together a whole lot, but I, and I never told her. 
One time we were watching Buck Rogers in the 20th century, 25th century, you ever watched that show? It's a great show. She explained how handsome Buck Rogers was. And for, I, for the first time, I kind of got a little jealous. I didn't tell her, but I felt, you know, Buck Rogers, yeah, he's kind of he's cool looking. <laughs> Wish I was cool looking like Buck Rogers. And she looked over at me and said, she had a secret to tell me. There's this other guy that's really handsome, and she wanted to tell me about him. My heart skipped a beat. Was it me? <laughs> wow, this is kind of cool. This could be really, this could be really great here at this moment. And, and, and she had that look in her eye, you know that look. Well, she had it, and she said, what I'm about to ch- tell you might change our friendship a little bit. Oh, me too, <laughs> me too. <laughs> Let's go. This is great, it's a great moment. Uh, well, I have a crush on, she said, I have a crush on Nathan. It's cool. I know Nathan's your friend, so I don't want it to be awkward. And, you know, it's kind of weird if, you know, we broke up and then, you know, all that. I was crushed. But I didn't look crushed, did I? Oh, well, that's fine. No problem. I, I, on the outside, I was fine. But inside, I was dying. Now, I didn't tell her. Lord knows I didn't tell her. I should have told her. But every time we hung out after that, she talked about Nathan. Nathan this, Nathan that. I hated it. But here it is. I was the only one that was upset. Now, God, in this passage, notice this. God is the only one that's upset by sin. Not even Jeremiah is as upset as God is. I mean, Jeremiah, yes, he he begins to understand how awful sin is. But the reason Jeremiah begins to understand that is because he's God's messenger who became the message. And he's living it out in his life. So he understands it. Suffering, what does it do? It informs us how God feels about sin. How horrible sin is. Who in this world cares about sin if it weren't for suffering? John Piper asked a question in the sermon I heard six months ago. It was a great question. It's been ringing in my head. Who among us sheds one single tear for the shame done against God's name? Now, I'm not talking about crying for sin. I cry for sin all the time. My sin, I feel guilty. My sin, I feel ashamed. I feel embarrassed. I've hurt my wife or my friend or my mother or father. That's bad for me. But I'm not talking about that. Let's lift our eyes and ask the question, how does God feel about sin? Not how do you feel in your terribleness. How does God feel about your sin? That's what the people were stopping and they were beginning to take notice. Wow. God's really upset. What does that mean? God's upset? Is it, he's just angry? He's just mad? He's flying on me. He's up in heaven going like this. He's just, well, I'm going to kill you. Is that all it is? Or is there more to it than that? And I say today, if you think God's just angry, that's not right. There's more to it than that. Let's look. I'm going to read from a few passages and you just listen. Just take a few moments here and just think about how God feels about sin. Genesis. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And here it is. The Lord 
was grieved that he had made man on the earth. And his heart was filled with pain. From Jeremiah, God says, Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror. Another passage in Jeremiah. Does a maiden forget her jewelry? A bride her wedding ornament? Yet my people have forgotten me. Days without number. Another passage in Jeremiah. Return, faithless people, for I am your husband. Again, another passage. What's my beloved doing in my temple as she works out her evil schemes with many? And finally, another passage in Jeremiah. Speak this word word to them. Let my eyes overflow with tears. Night and day without ceasing. Do you see it? Jesus stands there and says, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you together. That's how God feels about our sin. Here in Jeremiah, there's that salvation that comes. That bright, that bright ray of hope. It says in Jeremiah 16:14, Therefore, behold, the days are coming when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country. So there's salvation for Israel from the nations. But there's also another kind of salvation here. Look at verse 19. This is not salvation from the nations. It's salvation for the nations. For us. Jeremiah speaks of a time in the future. And he says, O Lord, my strength and my stronghold, my strength in the day of trouble, to you shall the nations come and from the ends of the earth and say, and after that refining fire comes, watch what they say, our fathers have inherited nothing but lies. We realize that now. Worthless things in which there's no profit. We realize there's no profit now. Can man make for himself gods? Such are not gods. Finally, God responds, I will make them know, I will teach them my power. And they shall know that my name is the Lord. If you're a Christian, God is going to use you. It's going to use all of you. I want you to prepare for it. <laughs> Very difficult to prepare for that. But he's going to use you. You're not going to be able to have two lives, one for ministry, one for yourself, and one for God. He's going to invade every part of your life. And for all of us. Jeremiah 16 is a refining fire. When we come out of that refining fire, we will know how God feels about sin. And there's hope and kindness and mercy. I'll close with this. George Mueller of Bristol, England, his wife died after 39 years in February of 1870. While he preached at the memorial service, he said, I miss her in numberless ways, 
I shall miss her yet more and more. But as a child of God, and as a servant of the Lord Jesus, I bow. I am satisfied with the will of my Heavenly Father. I seek by perfect submission to His holy will to glorify Him. I kiss continually the hand that has thus afflicted me. Let's pray. Father God, it took a lot to show us how you feel about sin. You've used Jeremiah in a costly way. And as we read these scriptures meant for us as much as Judah, we see how you are sad, sorrowful, grieving, filled with pain. You're ashamed of us and our sin. You're enraged and angry, furious. Thank you for showing that to us, Lord. We were blind, but now we see it. And as we come out, Lord, we see the ray of hope, the mercy and grace and kindness, and we love you even more, and we praise you even louder. We pray as we take this offering that you would use it to the building of your kingdom. We pray in Christ's name.